statue toppling, shrieking girls, white supremacists, safe spaces, trigger warnings, and English degrees without reading Shakespeare. Somehow one institution has become a focus point for all of these atrocities. We ask, is the Ivy League destroying America? We will discuss with the great Carol Swain. Professor Swain grew up in a two-bedroom shack in the rural South with 11 siblings, no indoor plumbing, and no running water. She dropped out of high school and became a teenage mother. Carol then earned her GED as well as five academic degrees from institutions including Virginia Tech, UNC Chapel Hill, and Yale. She rose to teach law and political science at Princeton and Vanderbilt universities. But then Professor Swain had the gall, the temerity, the audacity to be a Christian conservative, which naturally led students at Vanderbilt to petition for her suspension in 2015. The university chancellor tepidly defended her at the time, and she retired from Vanderbilt in 2017. We will get her thoughts on the academy, race relations, and book recommendations. Is the Ivy League destroying America? We will discuss. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. We have got a lot to talk about with Professor Swain. I can't wait to bring her on. I'm a huge fan of hers. But before we get to any of that, we got to make a little money. We got to make a little money, honey, and save you a little bit of money because money is honey and honey will save you money. Uh, do you know about honey? I've been using honey for years and uh, now they're a, a sponsor of the show, which is great because they help us keep the lights on. Uh, but it's really good. It's totally free. It should be the easiest decision you make all day. Do you ever turn down free money? Do you ever do that? Because I don't do that. I never turn down free money. If you shop online without the best coupons, you are already paying too much. Fortunately, there's a free browser extension called Honey that automatically finds the best coupons on the web so you always get the best prices on everything online. Do you remember in the old days, I think this must have been the 19th century when you would shop online and you would have to look up all of the different coupon codes and you'd have to manually do it and in your like covered wagon getting dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Those were the old days. That's ridiculous. You have time is money. Don't waste your time doing that. Honey is this browser extension where you put it in your browser, takes two seconds to do it, and then whenever you go shopping online, you click it and it just does all the best coupons. It just runs them through and you automatically save a bunch of money. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of a time that I used Honey to buy things, but I, I actually think it would be much easier to think of a time that I didn't use Honey to buy things, you know, maybe like once or twice. All the rest, I am always using Honey. It is this indispensable add-on. It's just free money in your browser. You'd be insane not to do it. In two clicks, add Honey to any browser for free. Then you just shop like you normally do. It scans and tests millions of coupons in the background. I'm such a cheapskate in the old day that I would scan millions of coupons in the foreground, but now <laughs> no more of that. At checkout, Honey will automatically apply the best coupon to get you the biggest discount. Do you know how many people use Honey every day? I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only cool guy who knew about this thing. Seven million people use it every day. Together, they've saved millions of dollars. When Honey's got your back, you will never pay overpay for anything ever again. You can use, I use it on a wide variety of sites. Uh, I, you know, I obviously I buy a lot of stuff for my business. I, I buy a lot of stuff just personally, gifts for sweet little Elisa. And don't tell, look, I love a good deal. I'm from New York. I love getting a good deal. And uh, so I, I never get anything without clicking and checking on it. Uh, there's no reason not to add Honey to your browser today. It's free, takes seconds to install. It will save you a lot of money. Add Honey to your browser for free right now at joinhoney.com slash 
Covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E, and you'll be able to afford even more Covfefe. Getting discount Covfefe in these markets is near impossible, but if anyone can do it, it's Honey. Go to joinhoney.com slash Covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. What is it? Joinhoney.com slash Covfefe. All right, let's bring on Professor Swain. Professor Swain, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your introduction. <laughs> well, Professor, you have a lot of notches under your belt. I've said a few of them. Um, but also, a lot of people, I think, don't know this. You predicted the alt-right years before anyone had ever heard of them, the new white nationalist movement. You survived for decades in the academy as both a Christian and a conservative. You rose up from crushing poverty to the most rarefied and elite halls in America. My first question is, we know the academy is biased against Christians and conservatives. In what ways does that bias manifest? Well, first of all, when I started my academic career uh, at Princeton, I was not a, a devout Christian believer. I was always viewing the world differently. Mm. And my first book, Black Faces, Black Interests, The Representation of African Americans in Congress, won the highest prize in political science, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation Prize for Best Book in Politics. And I was the first black to win it and the second woman. And I've won three national prizes. I've been cited by the Supreme Court. And so I was a hot shot. I had my Christian conversion experience in the late 1990s. And when I was hired by Vanderbilt, they did not know that they were getting a Christian. And when they hired me, I was not as conservative as I am now. Mm. And so I didn't have to go through being untenured and all of that as a devout Christian. But I can tell you that once I became publicly known as a Christian, life as I knew it ended. And then I would say that in 2015, after I published an opinion piece in the Tennessean criticizing Islam, my life in academia was pretty much over. Did you know at the time, you must have known, that if you were to contravene political correct orthodoxy in such a way as to, I don't know, criticize Islam, the well-known religion of peace, did you know that that would kill your academic career? No. I've always been a provocative thinker. That's why I've been successful in academia. And, um, and so, I mean, I, I was the person who was gutsy enough as an African-American I mean, excuse me, as a black person, in uh, the early 2000s, that was when I did the research on the white nationalism, and I had a researcher interview the leading white nationalists in the country, and that was when I predicted um, the rise of the alt-right, a new kind of nationalism that was not based on uh, racial overt racial hatred, was not using racial epithets was not espousing violence, but made the case, using the language of multiculturalism and, pol and political identity, that white was like any other group, that white people were being discriminated against, that white people needed to have the same rights as other people. I knew that because they framed it around the language of the left, that it would be appealing to young people because it pointed out racial double standards. Mm -hmm. And that was when I issued my warning. You know, on that point of the alt-right, I'll, I'll just uh, skip ahead because I, I do want to ask you about that. 
you, you predicted it. You predicted the, the rise of these white nationalists. I know you spoke to this new breed of white nationalist, these articulate people, these well-educated people. Uh, you know, in 2014, I think you point out in one of your books, I don't know, I think I've, I think I've read through most of your books, uh, in 2014, 55% of Americans were satisfied with race relations. By January of 2017, that number had fallen to 17%. Uh, the number even of Americans proud of their country has declined sharply. Uh, and then in the new white nationalism, in, in the book you wrote in the early 2000s, you said, cultured, intelligent, and often possessing impressive degrees from some of America's premier colleges and universities. This new breed of white racial advocate is a far cry from the populist politicians and hooded Klansmen of the old South who fought the losing battles for segregation and white supremacy during the great civil rights upheavals of a generation ago. And you, you presaged these guys like Jared Taylor, Richard Spencer, we see. Uh, you, you've also said you think there's an increasing white racial consciousness. The late uh, columnist, white nationalist columnist, Sam Francis, called for this. Why is that? Why is there this new increasing white racial consciousness? And why is the new white nationalism coming out of places like Yale, where Jared Taylor attended school, and, and you and I also went, rather than the good old boys, Palookaville Country Bar, <laughs> as, as we saw in the old days of the KKK? Well, there's a lot of reasons to that. And Jared Taylor was one of the uh, white nationalists that I had interviewed, and then later I brought him to Vanderbilt to debate Tim Wise, a civil rights activist. And I brought him in because he was an intellectual. He defied the stereotype, and the stereotype had been, you know, guys with missing teeth, beer gut, you know, they couldn't string together two words, and we just laughed at them. We saw them on TV because no one took them seriously. That was the Klan and the neo-Nazis that the media presented to us. And so with Jared Taylor, I saw someone that frightened me because I knew that with my mindset and my sense of justice and how I don't like double standards, that if I were that poor white kid from Appalachia, I thought some of his arguments could be persuasive to me. And I wanted people to see that they had the wrong image, that mm -hmm. these were well-educated people and they were taking the language of the left to its logical conclusion. And I think part of the appeal today is the fact that white people are not doing so well in America. If you read Charles Murray's research or you look at uh, the opioid uh, addiction, the people that are being affected, and just the outlook, the hopelessness that white people are experiencing, I think it's only natural that as they become a smaller percentage of the population, they would act and think like other minorities. And in parts of the country, they're already a minority. And so they are just engaging in normal human behavior when you see your world changing. That's right. And I, I love that you point out that articulate racists like Spencer or somebody or Jared Taylor are much more dangerous. They're, they're because uh, people might be tempted to take them seriously and to take their ideas seriously because they have a nice polish, you know, and maybe they wear tweed suits. It it's, always seems to me that the reason that white nationalists go so wrong is that they love Christendom. They talk ad nauseum about Christendom and Western Christendom, but they reject Christianity. Most of these guys are atheists, like Richard Spencer is an avowed atheist. Uh, between getting uh, your, your part of your and academic... And so is Jared, I actually didn't know that. Uh, Jared Taylor, also an atheist. And, but you had this experience, this born again Christian experience during your academic career. How did that 
come about? And how did that experience of Christianity affect your view of politics? I can tell you that um, as a child, I was the only one of the 12 that was able to reach college. And so I'm the only one that's, you know, solidly in in the middle class. And so so I, I guess in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm different as I was growing up. But I always saw the world differently. And when I was a young adult working outside the home, I worked in nursing homes. I worked uh, in a garment factory. I sold things from door to door. One year I had seven dead-end jobs. And I worked alongside a lot of poor whites that were just like me. Mm. And I think I've always had empathy for people who are working class just like me. And I felt very much discriminated against by the black middle class and upper class. In fact, I didn't feel it. It actually happened. And as far as the people that uh, mentored me, groomed me, saw my talent, pushed me, they were all Caucasian. (laughs) And I find this very common among people that I talk with that are black that come from similar backgrounds, the people who offered us a helping hand, many of them were white conservatives. So I don't know what that means, but I can tell you that my experiences have been um, experiences where I was treated better by whites than I were by blacks. That's interesting. On Beyond even the racial point, you, you notice this in the language of economic envy. So you hear people say, we hate the 1%, the upper 1% of wage earners. I've never understood that. I came from relatively lower means. I didn't grow up with 11 siblings in a shack, but relative to my area, I came from lower means. And rich people have always been great to me. I've always gotten jobs from rich people. I've gotten scholarships from rich people. I'm, I'm not particularly angry at them. And I noticed something at, at Yale, all the richest and most privileged Upper West Side children of hedge fund managers, they would lecture me and other students on financial aid about wealth and poverty in America. They would always lecture me. They'd call fellow conservatives who were on financial aid, they would, they would call them uncompassionate or oblivious to a financial difficulty. How, how have you responded throughout your life to elitists who would lecture you on race and poverty in America? I mean, it's really funny when they're white liberals, and yeah. <laughs> to me, they're they're the most racist group of all. Absolutely, and, that um, movie Get I, Out was I've absolutely had, right. <laughs> the white liberals are the most racist blacks. group. They are, and uh, and I have seen them discriminate in uh, college and university admissions decisions between two blacks. That there was a black person from a working class background that has higher scores, and one of the reasons I think that I have been treated well by conservatives and people who, you know, like you, people that were more affluent than 1%, is that they saw someone that was hardworking, that was sincere, and they rewarded that kind of behavior. And I think that uh, those same, some of those same people, if they are liberal, they don't expect anything of blacks anyway. And so they are willing to reward behavior, you know, that, is not very competent, and they don't believe any of us are capable of achieving on our own, and so they lower the standards, and they are harming black people on the colleges and universities. They're harming them by not holding them holding them to the same standards, and when they remove the classics, when they dumb down a math or economics course because students complain, when they cancel a course on free speech, they're harming everyone's education. And I think that 
we what we're seeing is the fruits of affirmative action taken to its logical conclusion in that, you know, during the era that I was in college in the 1980s and I, um, I graduated with my PhD in 89, but, um, you know, there was affirmative action, but if you were black and you were on those campuses, I mean, they were, you did not get huge breaks. I did not go to school free. You know, I had um, student loan debt. I had some scholarships, but I had to work. And nowadays they seem to be telling uh, black students that they can take separate tracks, that they can avoid any courses that may be challenging to their views. And, um, and I think they're harming everyone's education, and that is totally irresponsible of college administrators making multi-million dollars to run universities and they cave into the students and they're harming the minority students the most. That's such a good point because, you know, just last year, Yale decolonized the English department such that now you can graduate with a degree in English literature without reading Shakespeare, Milton, or Chaucer, which is incredible to me. And we've all seen that shrieking girl who was on that campus. In case you forgot, do we have a clip of the shrieking girl? Do you understand that? As your position as master, is your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students that live in Silliman. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why did you accept the position? Because what I have a, hired you? I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a master, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. It is not about creating an intellectual space. So when you see things like this, even at elite universities, Professor Swain. Uh, uh, and it's because they've hired the wrong people and they've sort of turned, the, the, you know, the black people over to the black studies program or the whatever ethnic studies program. And but it's spilling over to the rest of the university now. And uh, and I, you know, if that were my child or my grandchild, I would be horribly embarrassed. And a lot of uh, black students want to be held to the same standards. And they're not on board with all of the foolishness, but they're drowned out. And if they try to stand up for something different, then they, run, they risk ostracism, not just from mm. other students, but from the liberal left faculty right. that are actually manipulating the students. And all of this ties into cultural Marxism. That's the roots of all this madness on the college campuses. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I was going to ask, do we blame the students like that girl, or do we blame the faculty, or do we blame the administration? But uh, how do you see the root of cultural Marxism as hollowing out the academy? I think the students have been brainwashed, they've been indoctrinated, and that they really, uh, that they really don't know any better. And I think it goes back, it starts even in some cases in middle school, and uh, and then it gets reinforced in high school, and by the time they get to college, they're ready for the orientation programs, you know, to teach them how to be a true victim. And um, and I think that it's all about uh, remaking American culture, but it's not about remaking it in a way that's going to make black people or make the society better off. And again, mm. I think that 
what we are doing is very destructive. Uh, it's harming everyone's education. And I think it's because the universities have looked at the the increasing uh, demographic changes, the ethnic makeup of the country, and they've decided, you know, that you have to have uh, people in certain percentages with degrees, even if those people are not college material. And all of this unrest and all of this protest that the universities support, I think it's the product of them relaxing standards so low that you have students that can't do the work, the students are miserable, and all they do is agitate, and they're being manipulated in some cases by faculty members that are not qualified. Uh, and the, and so it's a vicious cycle. I don't know how you break it. The Ivy Leagues are the worst of all because they're turning out people that are going to be uh, Supreme Court justices. They're going to be uh, senators. They're going to be uh, uh, in newspaper editors, the thought and opinion leaders. And these people are shutting down free speech. They have no knowledge and respect of the Constitution. They will destroy America unless we can figure out a way to sort of dial it back and to move people to basics when it comes to honoring our Constitution and our American way of life. And I think that it's being pushed by a minority that all of this chaos and that we see taking place, it's being fostered by the actions of a few but imposed on everyone else. And there's so many people that are cowards, especially, I'm sorry, white people, in that uh, white people seem to be very afraid of being called racist. What they forget is that it doesn't matter what they do. They're going to be called racist. They're going to be called nativist. They're going to be called xenophobe. And so they might as well stand on some principles. If people start standing on principles, we might be able to change things. That is such a good point. I've long thought that when a lefty calls a conservative a racist, the conservative knows he's won the argument. And the, the, one shouldn't be afraid of this. It, the reason I don't worry about being called racist, I get called racist on Twitter all day long. You know, I said that Black Panther wasn't a great movie and I get called racist for that. And, but you, uh, the reason that I know that I'm not racist is that I know that I'm not racist. That's why, that's why I'm not afraid of people calling me that. And yet people are cowering in fear. And speaking of the destruction of culture and history, you see this most clearly, especially on campuses, with the toppling of all of these statues, the toppling of Confederate statues, the renaming of Cal. Calhoun College at Yale because Calhoun was a South Carolina senator who supported slavery. Uh, you, you, see, uh, you see Harvard taking the word Puritans out of its alma mater because it's not inclusive enough. You see it obviously with taking Shakespeare out of the English department. What is the end game for this cultural left well, in these I universities? Mean, all you have to do is read George Orwell's 1984 and you see, <laughs> you see part of the end game. And if you were to read... Um, Leon Skousen's The Naked Communist, he has a section in there. The book was published in 1958, and it had a section on 45 current communist goals, and that was current in 1958. They were read into the congressional record in 1963. The political left has accomplished most of those goals, and the end game seems to be to take America down. And I think that if people would read George Orwell's 1984 and maybe Animal Farm as well, uh, Huxley's Brave New World, if they would read it with the knowledge they have today of our society, maybe it would awaken 
enough young people. Mm. And I also would include Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. I think that every conservative needs to read it. And those parts of it that doesn't offend their conscience, they should apply it, such as make your enemy live up to his rule book. And, um, and I think that it's up to the young people that people of my generation can point them in the right direction, but ultimately, if they're going to preserve the society, they will have to fight, and they will have to fight with knowledge, and they need to know history, and they need to value the Constitution. They need to know their enemy. Right. I think that's so much of it. I think the hollowing out of the curricula and knocking down all these statues and trying to erase our history and revise our history, I think a lot of that is so that we can wipe away all of that accumulated knowledge of tradition and make it easier for the reformers to keep reforming and reforming and reforming. Now, I notice at the beginning of your book, Be the People, you quote two of my favorite men, Leon Cass, in his book on Genesis and C.S. Lewis on Screwtape, both writers about scripture, both writing about scripture in that case. Uh, you know, Harvard's founding motto was Veritas Pro Christo et Ecclesiae, Truth for Christ and Church. Uh, this, this, uh, all of these early colleges and universities in America were founded to study scripture, to be, uh, as, uh, as Harvard's rules and precepts of 1646 wrote, the main end of a student's life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Uh, then you fast forward now and the former president of Johns Hopkins University says the bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, confessed things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. This sure seems like mission drift to me. Uh, does the university need to return to God, or are we so beyond that point in culture that that's a lost cause? No, I think uh, that it's up to the students and their parents and those people who value America to use their influence and their dollars to push the university back mm. uh, to the middle. I mean, they don't have to go, you know, all the way back to the 1700s when God was honored at these institutions that were founded. Uh, but I think that um, they are so off balance now. Mm. And I think that we all have a stake in having leaders and producing citizens who know how to think. We're not teaching anyone how to think these days. Not even the faculty can think. And, and that's uh, very problematic. I do have a friend named Mary Poplin who is at Claremont Graduate uh, School. She uh, has founded a new organization named the Upper Room. It's a nonprofit, but it's Christian intellectual, Christian intellectual faculty members who are looking at their disciplines and trying to sort of reinterpret their disciplines based on uh, their knowledge of truth, Christian truth. And the political left doesn't want to debate because they don't have the facts on their side. They don't even have science on their side anymore. They don't even know the difference between male and female. Um, they lose when you deal with facts and you deal with science. And I think that the effort that Mary and the faculty members involved in her project, it's all about trying to recapture the universities. I think the universities can be recaptured but it's going to take all of us working together 
with a vision. Absolutely right. I've noticed this just speaking to my own friends in the academy. I find basically all of them are godless except for the smartest ones. And the smartest ones are talking about Jesus. <laughs> I know, you know, the, the son of the great uh, Lord of the multiverse, our colleague Andrew Clavin, uh, his son works on classics at uh, Oxford. And he has a wonderful reading group who work on scripture and a reading group of Christians that I, I try to listen to or glean some insight from. I wonder if we're on the verge of a, of a revival in that way. Organizations like that would be, uh, would be phenomenal if that's the case. If the universities are failing us, which it seems they are, people write into me all the time. They say, should I go to college? Should my child go to college? Is it a total waste? Is it going to simply saddle me with a quarter million dollars in debt? Uh, now, obviously, you did very well in, in the academy, to say the least. Uh, I enjoyed college very much, and I think I got something out of it. In what ways should students augment their education? What books should people be reading that the universities have failed to teach? What things should people be studying on their own if they're not going to get it in college? First of all, I would urge every parent that's Christian who has the resources to either homeschool individually or as part of a co cooperative group. Do not send your child to the fancy private school or the public school unless it's a classical Christian uh, school. And so that's the first thing, because they would get education at those institutions that they would not get anywhere else. So their foundation would be laid. And I think that every literate person needs to know the Bible. And whether or not they are a believer or not, that that's the basic the greatest book in the world that they need to know, but Western civilization, stick with the classics, stick with the great books of the past, and uh, I think that's the firm foundation, but also know your enemy, and I think when our children go off to college, they need to know that they're entering enemy territory, and sometimes it's the Christian school. So many of them have gone so far left right. that they're not a safe place for Christian students uh, but I don't think we should stop sending our children to college. We need to prepare them ahead of time. If they are Christians in churches, they need to know apologetics as well as worldviews and, and the literature of the political left. We need to answer that question before they get to college. And how do we, that's such a good point, and you talk about the Western canon and Western civilization, and now uh, both the left and the radical left and the racists on the alt-right, they say, well, the Western canon, that's just white guys. That's white civilization uh, that is different than uh, and exclusionary than other cultures. Uh, how do you respond to this? The Southern Poverty Law Center, that vicious and We're awful group. About race. I respond as a, I mean, I respond as a Christian because that's my worldview. And I believe there's only one race, the human race. And that, um, that, that, I mean, I, I dismiss, I discount, I do not legitimize those who argue that we should not read Shakespeare because he was white or that we should not read dead white men. I think that some of the greatest works of history, uh, we're making a terrible mistake, you know, by uh, removing uh, Mark Twain and um, what's the Harper? Harper, Harper, uh, uh, Harper, Harper Lee. Lee. Yeah. Uh, the um, To Kill a Mockingbird and all of those, you know, stories that have impacted generations of people. And, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, that's probably not politically correct, but it's an important book. I think that we're making a huge mistake 
when we removed Lit Richard because the author happened to have been, you know, white. That's right. And that if we treat white people the same way we, the political left says that we should treat members of every other group, we would not have a problem. They um, created the race and the racism to a large extent, and they're using it, you know, to divide people. And I think it's very, very important that uh, we don't give up the Western traditions, the Judeo-Christian way of life that is responsible for America being a country that people are willing to risk their lives to come to, even though they try to change it once they get here. Of course, and all of these values of equitable governance and justice and liberty and equality, all of those things come out of the Western <laughs> tradition that people are now so despising, the Western tradition animated by Christianity, uh, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in the body of Christ. That part seems to evade both the radicals on the, the racist fringe and also the radical left. And uh, really, really excellent to talk to you. We could go on forever, but I'm up against a break. Professor Swain, thank you so much for being here. We'll have to have you back and, and talk a little bit more. Thank you very much. Take All right, care. thank you. Wow, she is great. That's un unbelievable <laughs> background. Raised in a shack, one of 12 kids, slept on the kitchen floor, didn't have plumbing, didn't have running water, and rises up to become a professor of law and, and political science at the most elite institutions of the country. And now the SPLC calls her a, a white a supremacist or something, a white bigot. Absolutely outrageous and despicable. She, yeah, Carol Swain, she is so good. I urge people to read uh, to read her books and look her up on YouTube. She's given other great talks as well. Okay, we got speaking about our culture and our history and defending our culture. We've got to get to this day in history. But before we do that, I'm so, uh, you guys are monsters. You guys are just vicious monsters. I have to say goodbye to Facebook and the audience formerly on YouTube. <laughs> the former audience that was on YouTube before they decided to censor us and every syllable that comes out of my mouth, probably because I have those white supremacists on like Carol Swain. That's probably why they can't, they can't allow our videos on YouTube. Okay. Thank you very much. If you're watching there, go to dailywire.com. If you're already a subscriber, we appreciate it. You help keep the lights on and Kofefe in my leftist years tumbler. What do you get? You get for $10 a month or $100 for an annual membership. You get me, the Andrew Clavin Show, the Ben Shapiro Show. You get the conversation coming up with the big boss very soon. Uh, the Ben Shapiro, that one will be up next. None of that matters. What really matters is this. Have you guys been watching Jimmy Kimmel lately? Have you been seeing him? Jimmy Kimmel the former host of The Man Show is now <laughs> sobbing on national television every single night. And you're going to need these guys. He said he was happy that he doesn't have a Republican audience anymore. He said, riddance. I won't even say good riddance, riddance. And you're going to need these. Otherwise, I think your computer, or your, uh, your uh, television rather, is going to explode. It's going to, uh, because you don't want all that salty water near the electrical wires. And Jimmy Kimmel is giving you a steady stream every night. So make sure you get your leftist tears tumbler so you can safely dispose of those salty, salty left left the steers and you, and you can drink them because they're, they're delicious, either hot or cold. They're always delicious. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with this day in history on Washington's birthday. It is time for this day in history. On this day in history, it's Washington's birthday, which shouldn't be confused with Washington's birthday. 
It's Washington's birthday, but it's, it's certainly not the day uh, George Washington was born. He was born on February 11th under the Julian calendar because the British Empire had not yet adopted the Gregorian calendar because they were Protestant savages and the Catholic Church adopted that Gregorian calendar in 1582. So on the Gregorian calendar, which is the one we use, Washington was born on February 22nd. It's also not today. It's also not Lincoln's birthday. Sometimes this day is called Washington and Lincoln's birthday. Lincoln's birthday was February 12th. The thing that is most certainly not, is President's Day, which was a name change proposed in the 1968 Uniform Monday Holiday Act, but mercifully it failed in committee because I do not want to take away George Washington's birthday and start celebrating other presidents like Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter or whatever. Maybe, maybe uh, Calvin Coolidge or something, but uh, Warren Harding, but uh, certainly not uh, those later presidents. George Washington's birthday. George Washington was born in 1732. The, the thing I, I think we all have to drive home, we have this image of George Washington. Well, in the old days, we had an image of him as the father of the country, this, the guy on the $1 bill. Now we have the image of him as a vicious slaveholder because we all read Howard Zinn and, and stuff like that in schools. George Washington was an amazingly courageous, dignified, and virtuous man of a caliber that I don't think we can even fathom in 2018. He was born in 1732. His father died in 1743. George was just 11 years old. His father left him very little money for form formal schooling, so Washington was only able to be formally educated through age 15. How did he uh, educate himself? He clearly was an educated man. He did it on his own. He decided of his own volition to write down the rules of etiquette that a dignified and gentlemanly guy would comport himself with. He wrote his own book. You can still buy it, uh, Washington's Rules for Civility. Uh, Washington was insanely courageous in battle. People now criticize him for having made some strategic errors as general. Uh, it, you know, if they were errors, and maybe there were errors, he was saved time and time again by providence and weather patterns, which sometimes you can't distinguish from one another. But he was insanely courageous. During the French and Indian War at the Battle of Monongahela, in 1755, Washington rode through men who were being slaughtered all around him to take charge of the collapsing lines. He could have stayed back, but he decided to ride, charge on ahead uh, to, take, to take care of these lines as men were falling off horses all around him. During this charge, he had two horses shot out from under him and four bullet holes shot through his coat. Four bullet holes. I, now, I am convinced, as are many, that the American Revolution would not have been won. We could not have won it. It would have been over in 1776 without George Washington. Here is a clear example of providence. Two horses shot out from under him in the same instance. Four bullet holes through his coat. And he kept on and uh, was able then to take the lead in the American Revolution. At the Battle of Princeton in 1777, George Washington led soldiers from his white charger to within a mere 30 yards of the British line. He was an easy target. Everyone thought he was going to get killed. He didn't care. He, he is said to have said, parade with me, my fine fellows. We will have them soon. This reminds me of Churchill when his plane was shot down the third time. They said, don't you fear death? He said, I love life, but I do not fear death. You see this time and again with Washington on the battlefield. By December 1776, most consider the revolution a lost cause. The patriots had suffered defeats in New York and New Jersey, massive defeats. So what did Washington do? He led a counter strike against the ice-filled Delaware River on Christmas Day. And even that charge was delayed immensely. People said there's no way there won't be any any element of surprise, which there wasn't. It was daylight by the time they arrived there. And he said, it doesn't matter. We're doing it anyway. This is how we're going to win. In 1781, 
With the revolution once again on the verge of defeat, Washington made the risky decision to surround Cornwallis's British army at Yorktown. This wasn't the ceremonial end to the war. This was a major risky decision, and there had been huge setbacks for the patriots. Nevertheless, he decided to surround Cornwallis's army. It, it won the war. On December 23rd, 1783, George Washington surrendered his military commission to Congress to affirm civilian control of the military. This handing over of power caused his former foe, King George III, to call him, quote, the greatest man in the world. He then followed this up by surrendering presidential power after two terms. It's not like there were term limits. It wasn't until that dirty, rotten Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, that they would break Washington's example of two terms and stay on until he died in his mistress's arms. But uh, George Washington set that precedent. He could have stayed on. He could have been the American king, but it wasn't until a Democrat in the 20th century that someone strove to become the American king. Uh, Washington was the richest president in American history, he was the richest president in American history. We now have President Kofefe who converted the White House into the Gold House. So now Washington is only the second richest American president, but still pretty good record. Upon his death, Washington freed his slaves. Washington was the only founding father to do so. He was universally respected by his peers. He was the only founding father who could say that. They were always infighting with one another, but not with Washington. Abigail Adams wrote, quote, he is polite with dignity, affable without formality, distant without haughtiness, grave without austerity, modest, wise, and good. It's a pretty good recommendation. Lafayette said, General Washington is the greatest man, for I look upon him as the most virtuous. Nathaniel Green, one of the greatest officers of the revolution, reported, quote, His Excellency, General Washington, has arrived amongst us, universally admired. Joy was visible on every countenance. Francis Hopkinson, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, quote, He retreats like a general and attacks like a hero. One age cannot do justice to his merit, but the united voices of a grateful posterity shall pay a cheerful tribute of undissembled praise to the great asserter of their country's freedom. I hope that's the case, and I hope that ingrates and revisionists don't start toppling statues as we've seen happening all around us, as President Trump spoke about last year. I hope we don't see that too much. I hope the gratitude continues. Thomas Jefferson wrote, quote, on the whole, Washington's character was in its mass perfect. Never did nature and fortune combine more perfectly to make a man great. As Henry Lee wrote famously in his eulogy of Washington, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, may he ever remain so, the greatest of the founding fathers, George Washington. That's this day in history. And it's not President's Day. It's Washington's birthday. Say it out loud. Shout it from the rooftops. Happy birthday to Washington. That is our show. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll have much more Covfefe to cover. Until then, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I'll see you then. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.